Hello, hello everybody. Welcome back. Welcome to another video about consciousness and qualia and the meaning of it all. So today we're going to talk about a really interesting topic, I think. It's attention and awareness and their interdependence. But first, you know, the quality of the day is the point. <laughs> what is the point? What is the point of it all? Is there a point? Is there a point in all of this? So here's an example. Is this a point? <laughs> is this another point? No, this is not a point, but is this a point? Okay, so what is a point? And is there a point? And I'm gonna claim that there is no point. There's actually no point to anything. Points don't exist. Um, the fact that there's no point doesn't mean that there's no value. You know, that's an important, important clarification. Important, you know, there's a lot of confusion there. <laughs> you can have a pointless universe that is value field. And actually, I think that's actually the, the case. So <laughs> what do I mean by that? So, well, okay, in math, if you go back to Euclid, you know, what is a point? A point is that, you know, that object which has no parts. And, you know, I would claim that in, in some very, very deep level, everything in math went downhill since Euclid. You know, since Euclid, things in math have made just no sense whatsoever. You know, <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, yeah, that Euclid, Euclid, yeah, he, he just kind of like messed up all of math. Um, okay, I'm obviously being a, you know, I'm obviously joking because, you know, axiomatic geometry obviously gave rise to a tremendous amount of innovation in math. And yes, of course, you can all of a sudden prove things and it's beautiful and things like that. But I would claim that fundamentally with that kind of definition is like a point is that which has no parts. You actually are kind of like not understanding what you're doing when you're doing math to begin with. Now, I'm going to make another video about what is math. And why is it the case that actually mathematics is a very different thing than what people believe it is? Um, but, you know, that's a topic for another, for another uh, video. That said, I will argue that actually points don't exist. And you will see why as I go over kind of uh, attention and awareness. But, you know, to elaborate a little bit on kind of points and is there a point? So... Uh, yeah, I mean, okay, in math, they think of it as kind of a zero-dimensional entity. And what is that? Can there be something that has zero dimensions? Is that even, you know, cogent, coherent? <laughs> something with no extension whatsoever? Does that make sense? No! <laughs> if your teacher is trying to sell you the idea of a point, just say no, man, just say no. <laughs> Makes no sense. <laughs> in in Neo-Age circles, there's this uh, concept called the, the prime radiant. Uh, you, can, you can read about it on some quality of computing posts. Not that I'm new age, but you know, they're oftentimes like pretty generative in how they approach the world and they say interesting things that make you think. And the prime radiant is this idea that all there is in existence is actually just one point, just one singularity that is whizzing around and moving around and sort of like self-interfacing and self-interfering with itself and kind of moving so fast that it traces an entire world. And not only that, but that every conscious being has their own prime radiant. And then the prime radiants synchronize so that we inhabit shared realities in a way. Um, of course, this doesn't quite make sense, right? Because if all there is, is actually just that one point, then what's up with that point actually having an extension in time enough to be able to self-intersect? Okay, so 
you know, by its very premise, it does not make sense. But it's interesting to think about. Uh, a singularity? Could there be something with, you know, infinite mass and infinite energy <laughs> and just one point? Of course not. It's nonsense. <laughs> um, as the Buddha would say, oneness and the thought of oneness are already two things. Now, okay, I, I do advocate to some extent for open individualism and the idea that we're all one consciousness, but not from the point of view of we're all just one point. Actually, there's something much more tricky and, and, and fascinating that is going on. Um, kind of like still manning the view of, of the point, like we're all one point, is the one electron universe first proposed by Feynman in a conversation with Wiener. And uh, that's fascinating because essentially a point movie is, you know, an electron um, is mathematically equivalent to a positron, that is the, the antimatter equivalent of an electron, moving backwards in time. And, you know, and, and when they, you know, meet, they cancel out into pure energy, which would be like a photon, okay, with no mass. So, but, but it has energy, right? So um, what they argue is that, okay, from a certain point of view, that is actually just one electron bouncing off, bouncing off of a photon and then moving backwards. And um, in a sense, like the entirety of reality is just one electron interweaving with itself and creating these crazy pattern of self-interference. And, you know, what I like about this, though, is that you can kind of like flip this around and say, like, you know, this is just one way of formulating the behavior of fields. And actually, the thing that exists is fields. But you can formulate it as, you know, a superposition of points interacting with each other, kind of in the Feynman diagram formulation of quantum mechanics. But uh, yeah, if you were to kind of take the point ontology seriously, yeah, maybe all there is is just that one point. <laughs> of course, then all of a sudden, you know, the binding problem at the extension of consciousness and all of those things, yeah, kind of like become serious problem within, within that ontology. Uh, which is why, yeah, I mean, I think uh, an, an ontology of atoms ultimately doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> we, we, there's no atoms, you know, atoms are kind of a illusory behavior of fields. So actually, uh, in, in the sort of, you know, ontology that I play with, that we think a lot at QRI, that, you know, I, I, I put, put a lot of content on, a lot of thought on, is that actually, yeah, fundamentally, what exists is fields. And fields, under certain configurations, have point-like behavior. You know, fields can do interesting topological transformations that generate the, as an emergent effect, something that behaves like a point. And I will actually explain that when we talk about a point that you look, you're, this is actually kind of like what's going on. Actually, the, the point is just a fixation within your awareness, attention, interdependent relationship dynamic. But it is not the case that that point exists on its own. The thing that exists is the entire field, <laughs> which behaves in a point-like fashion within regions of it. Yet, the entirety of, you know, the point-like behavior is an emergent holistic effect of the entire field. Okay, so let us unpack that. You know, we actually have a few kind of uh, intuitive hints of this. So, for example, Alan Watts, you know, has this very famous phrase, figure, ground are dependent on each other, or they, you know, they are codependent, they, they co-arise. You cannot have the figure without the ground or the ground without the figure. Uh, intuitively, it makes sense, right? But why would that be the case? You know, it's it's uh, you, you need to kind of elaborate on it. Um, and you know, like being frank here, you know, um, a lot of people I think like take that insight. You can't have 
figure without a ground and vice versa. Um, to mean things such as everything is made of polarities, you know, <laughs> you, you can't have happiness without sadness. You can't have goodness without evil and things like that, which I actually don't agree with. Um, maybe when it comes to the statements of qualia, yes, you know, because of zero ontology, which you can see in another video, why is there anything at all? Um, yeah, yeah, qualia values do cancel each other out, but valence as a structural feature of your experience, you know, valence structuralism, something that Mike Johnson came up with, it, it may not actually be preserved. You could actually have a universe that is constructed in such a way that all of the monads, all of the, you know, topological segments that exist within it have positive valence and their interactions are positive valence. So I don't think, I don't think it is the case that you can't have happiness without suffering. Um, and the, the truth though is that people take this way too far, right? They, they kind of like, there's this ideology of like, you know, good and evil need to balance each other out. And yet when you inquire into why somebody believes that they will say, well, you know, that's kind of like <laughs> what makes me feel good. Like ultimately it's kind of like they are actually still pursuing the good, even while believing that good and evil must balance it themselves out, right? Like they're not going to volunteer to like, yeah, I'm going to be the one who experiences the intense suffering or whatever, because we need to balance it out. Like, no, 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 of course not. So um, you shouldn't take the, you know, codependence between figure ground too far at a, you know, metaphysical level or kind of a overextending it to other concepts or other properties of consciousness to which, it, you know, that doesn't apply. Um, but there is something super deep about it. So I'll come back to it in a second. So first of all, what is attention and what is awareness? So I think attention is a very, very important concept. You know, in cognitive science, oftentimes they think about it as kind of like the, the flashlight within your mind. It kind of like moves around and it ties things together. Um, and, uh, you know, there's almost kind of a, a little bit of an illusion here where like some people, especially people who are like, pretty much on the spectrum, uh, I would say, uh, sorry, there's a little bit of kind of a um, illusion that they think that all there is to their experience is attention, you know, that which you're paying attention to. Uh, but that's not the case. So as soon as you open your eyes, you have kind of an awareness field that gets generated. And very quickly, tiny fixation points start to generate pictures that then, you know, recursively, you know, balance each other out until you get a stable, representation of the world around you. And then within it, you can concentrate attention one place at a time in a systematic way. Okay, but just, it feels like this very, you know, bottom up process. So what's going on there, right? It's not that you have like one flashlight of attention that is just painting the thing individually, right? You have like this weird kind of like bottom up process where you are kind of the entirety of the field at once. And then, you know, you have this bubbling up of higher level percepts that eventually, yeah, crystallize. And then those can actually be examined with a flashlight of attention. So just from that, you can kind of conclude that we might need to generalize the concept of attention. It's not just a flashlight. There's other things. There's also this bubbling up of, of you know, kind of an awareness becoming something that is structured into actual perceptual objects through some kind of process of quasi-attention. So what's, what's going on there? Okay, so in this video, we're actually going to generalize this concept of attention from just that flashlight into something far more general and trippy, <laughs> but also explanatory, I think. Um, 
Now, you know, attention, yes, in cognitive science, in neuroscience, it's, it's somewhat fairly well-defined. I mean, you can, for example, uh, train a monkey to actually pay attention to something that they're not looking at by rewarding them. And, for example, like, you know, put a hint over here that if they don't move their eyes, but they can notice, you know, information in the periphery, and they can relay that information, they get a banana or something like that. So you can train them to essentially pay attention to things that they're not looking at, to not fixate on them with their fovea, with the center of their visual field. Um, and more so, you know, there's a lot of studies where they can actually detect this. They can, you know, with EEG or fMRI, they can detect, you know, was the monkey or was the person paying attention to something that was not at the center of their visual field? Okay, so, and you know, that's one of the things that neuroscience is actually really good at, which is like taking one sample of people doing one task, another sample of people doing a different task, <laughs> doing neuroimaging on them, and then using a black box machine learning algorithm and tell you, okay, which one is which? Okay, and then like they look at the features and what are the most predictive ones and like, okay, probably the insula is involved or, you know, the temporal lobe is involved or something like that. And that's your paper. Okay, that's a very typical kind of like formulaic way of kind of producing research in academia. Of course, there's a lot more to it and this is a cartoon picture, but, you know, to a first approximation. And that kind of study doesn't really tell you what attention is, does it? Right? All it is telling you is that the information about where you're paying attention to is readable with the neuroimaging. It's not actually telling you what it is at a more fundamental level. Okay, so uh, more so, okay, um, there is this really cool research, uh, which is about visual perception, <laughs> which is um, this difference between stuff and things. So here's kind of like one example of uh, um, stuff, potentially. So, I mean, unless you do the, you know, cross your eyes and, okay, you, I wouldn't recommend doing it through this video, but you can look out of stereogram or magic eye visual illusions. And uh, yeah, I mean, in this case, this is a, a texture, you know, this is stuff, right? Like it, it, it doesn't congeal into things until you actually kind of uh, identify the depth map that actually, you know, you get the semantic content embedded in it. Um, but you see, there's a lot of things that are like that. They're just texture, you know, for example, a lot of the, 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 the texture in the uh, elephant over there, uh, some of you may not even have realized that's an elephant, <laughs> but th and that's a gr great example where like all of a sudden stuff congeals into a thing, something that I called uh, a gestalt in the previous video uh, on nonlinear wave computing. So when you have stuff congealing into things, okay, so that requires attention necessarily. So, um, Whenever you have something that was like a texture and it became a thing, you're required to pay attention to it. Um, so in this sense, you can kind of like start to realize that the way in which your visual field, in which your world simulation more broadly gets constructed is through these process of quick attention fixation points that congeal low level sensory features into bound percepts that then can linger. And once they linger, they can be recursively put together in order cre to create a higher order gestalt that is made of those ones. So that is more or less actually what is going on. So like you open your eyes and very quickly, a lot of these tiny, tiny attention fixed points are you know, fixating and binding various low level sensory features into higher and higher level percepts until yes, you get the gestalt of the scene as a whole. Now, 
uh, in the nonlinear wave computing video, yes, we talked about like how a lot of these can be interpreted through the lens of essentially linear and nonlinear waves and their interactions. But I'm not going to go too in deep into that um, because it's a, a little bit kind of uh, distracting and, and, and very complicated <laughs> or very complex. But I will use that frame, though, in order to explain the overarching point of <laughs> this video, which is that in the model that I am currently working on, essentially, attention and awareness work through these more general phenomenon that I call oscillatory complement. So attention and awareness are the oscillatory complements of each other. And I hope this is going to make sense throughout, you know, the presentation, but it might take a little bit of, you know, you might need to bear with me as kind of like, as I articulate why I think this is the case. So mm, we get back to what is a point. So a point does not exist in a vacuum. Well, maybe it does. Maybe that's actually the point. It has to exist in a vacuum. But the vacuum is a thing <laughs> in, a, in an important way. So when you experience this point, that is in your awareness, you have this oscillatory dynamic where it's grabbing the space around it. And it is sending an, it's kind of like oscillatory wave going into the point that it goes back and goes in and goes back and it goes in and goes back and forth. So in a sense, um, you have that a point is going to be a place where a lot of these waves meet. And because they meet in phase, they bounce back in phase. And in that way, a point and the gestalt to which it belongs are co-arising that at point actually belongs intrinsically to a space, to a coherent space. And you know, I'll articulate like why that is the case, because you could actually have pointless states of consciousness that are highly fragmented, or um, as I'll explain in a moment, they have, um, af you know, they have like affine spaces on psychedelics. Yeah, I'll, I'll get into that. But uh, yeah, first that point. Now, most of the attention, like how we construct it, is going to be essentially these, you know, for lack of a better term, let's use waves of energy that propagate from the immediate and, and f further surrounding in your experiential field into that particular region, such that the information of that region essentially becoming energized and becoming nonlinear and crystallizing into a particular shape can bounce off and propagate to the rest of the experience. Now, this is going to be very dependent on how concentrated you are, because if you're like really, you know, you know, phased out or, or dazed, you may not actually have enough kind of phase coherence in order to perceive one point, um, because the point is going to be perceived differently from each of the different regions of your experience. But if you're highly concentrated, let's say in a meditation retreat, on a, on a jhana retreat, <laughs> or, or shamatha retreat, everything is super highly concentrated, then one point and all of the experiential field 
will co-arise and is going to be very coherent and therefore also very high valence. Okay, so actually how well you can perceive one point, how high the resolution is your cap of your capacity to experience one point is approximately a measure of your degree of concentration, which is, yeah, approximated by how much coherence and, and, uh, and, and coherent phase there is in these oscillatory waves. Now, this is kind of the basic case when you have regions that are sending waves of energy to one tiny location, generate a nonlinearity there, and then from that nonlinearity you have the energy bounce off in phase, and therefore generating a gestalt. But attention is more general than that. So that would be kind of the flashlight perspective, which is like, yes, this particular region all of a sudden becomes the oscillatory complement of the entire experience. So like whenever you fixate on something, very briefly, your entire experience is oscillating back and forth with it. And you're kind of like constructing your experience in a recursive fashion doing that. But actually, there's also a generalized version of it where, for example, the thing that is the oscillatory complement could be a line. And you could experience an entire line at once, as long as it's the oscillatory complement of the rest of the experience. Or a space, or a plane, or even a hyperplane, like in the case of uh, DMT, as I've expressed in, in other videos. So that's kind of like to a first approximation. Okay, like I'm claiming that awareness and attention are actually a special case, in a way, of oscillatory complementarity. Now, let's look at how this applies to, you know, specific cases, for example, uh, various kinds of meditation. So, uh, as I was explaining, uh, concentration meditation would be kind of a, an attention purification process where these oscillatory waves become uh, in phase and coherent. And, you know, there's various degrees of it. And if you become extremely concentrated, you, uh, you know, you become absorbed into particular Percepts. And I think that absorption is something like when more than 50%, say, I mean, I don't know exactly what the threshold is, but like 50% would make sense, you know, as a, <laughs> as a first guess, um, more than 50% of the oscillations are interlocked with that particular, you know, object of attention. Um, so that would be absorption. So essentially most, the majority of your experience is currently interlocked in a stable way with whatever object of attention it may be. Here's the other thing. I mean, from the other video, you know, when I was talking about vibes. So the vibe of the object of attention will modify the waves of energy that are sent to it. So if you're looking at something very unpleasant, very asymmetrical and jagged and, and maybe um, pointy and, uh, you know, has a lot of like irregularities, the waves of energy will bounce off and become defaced. And that is going to be low valence. So actually, the vibe of the thing that you're paying attention to will actually impact the structure of your experience in a holistic fashion. So that's why, yeah, actually paying attention to high valence objects can actually be healing. It's healing to the entirety of the experience, not only to your attention. Um, I hope that makes sense. Um, the other thing is... Um, uh, also, high concentration can generate additional objects of attention that are, in a sense, more complex and more uh, energized. 
because with all that level of coherence, you can concentrate higher amounts of energy and therefore achieve new kinds of nonlinearities. I mean, this is why, in fact, you know, there are entire, you know, entire families of, you know, qualia objects in DMT that are just not accessible in normal everyday life because they require a threshold of energy first to kind of create a new base, a new base of like energized objects and with specific nonlinearities that then recursively interact with each other. And there's kind of like an algebra of how they, you know, can build together in order to create, yeah, these like crazy hyperbolic, you know, high dimensional, you know, resonant objects of attention. Um, and yeah, on very high levels of concentration, like in fire casinos and things like that, um, yeah, you can experience DMT-like levels of uh, consciousness and, and the kind of perceptual objects that are like that. Essentially, unity, it allows you to unlock those very high energy percepts. Um, now, there's another facet to meditation, which is insight. And I guess I should mention, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but uh, really should be the responsible thing to say, which is that if you do a lot of insight practice, you should probably learn at least the bare minimum of uh, dark night because you may just fall in a dark night and then like ruin your life with a bad temper and like, uh, you know, like projection and like all sorts of like negative energies and uh, akathisia and restless legs and who knows, a, a, a bunch of stuff. I recommend reading, you know, the stages of insight in uh, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. It's freely available online to kind of like, yeah, but, you know, if you do a bunch of insight practice, all of a sudden that may happen and you ideally would be prepared for it. But to a first approximation, in, in this model of awareness and attention, nonlinear wave computing, what insight is are techniques to de-energize pre-existing nonlinearities. So yes, I mean, the entire world simulation that you experience is constructed out of like previous gestalts that you have generated from previous experiences things that you can bring back into your awareness and interact with and they will have like their unique you know vibe and uh, all of that will influence your mood and, and and so on well inside practices there are many right like there's many ways of kind of like not energizing those you know there's things such as like vajra cutting through with vajra consciousness which is kind of like rather than like a gentle just not interact with it it's kind of like shroom like like don't don't engage or like just don't engage just don't engage and that would be one inside practice other ones are kind of let's say like just do nothing just do nothing meditation which is very tricky actually because the you know doing nothing as an activity <laughs> becomes energized and then you have to figure out how to not engage with the belief that you're doing nothing and that itself is going to be a gestalt so it's very tricky uh, but you also, you also have things such as a uh, noting noting or emptiness practices like, oh, everything is impermanent. Everything is impermanent, you know, or like has no inherent essence, has no inherent essence. All of those things are ways for you to not couple with, don't pay attention to those nonlinearities and re-energize them. And if you do that for a long while, eventually there's kind of a threshold where they, because they stop being energized, they start to actually break down. They, they stop being cohesive. And this goes through, yeah, apparently, you know, very predictable stages of like first the low level percepts become, you know, they start like dissolving. And then, you know, it's other things that start dissolving, like your emotions and eventually it's your sense of self that starts dissolving. <laughs> all sorts of really weird and bizarre things, a lot of them very unpleasant. But ultimately, you know, if you do that enough times and, 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 uh, and a very high level of uh, 
of a discipline, eventually you arrive at equanimity. And in equanimity is actually just a much better state because you're not, you know, attached and clinging to the nonlinearities that make up your world simulation. Has any higher intrinsic valence. Uh, equanimity, for example. Uh, yeah, like all sorts of crazy, you know, phasing of, of attention and awareness happens on equanimity. Daniel Ingram describes them like, you know, reality is trying to synchronize with itself or subject and object kind of like become synchronized. Yeah, all of those things, I think, like, makes sense from the point of view of kind of uh, oscillatory complementarity that because you're not engaged and caught up in the nonlinearities that usually make up your world simulation that have this dualistic tinge in this case all of a sudden yeah attention and awareness have kind of like a more expanded field to try to you know balance each other out and you get kind of like or 5meo dmt i think like that's another really really amazing example of uh, awareness and attention really doing very crazy things where all of a sudden like it feels like everything kind of happens at once and if you you know you take 5-MeO DMT and you stare at the world around at a you know medium dose I don't know five milligrams or something like that very weird things happen like you see all of your all of the you know cupboard at once or all of the bookshelf at once and like it, it's not you know competing with itself there's no kind of attention attractors and anything just kind of like happens at once and there's like these impressions of gestalts being pushed and and experiencing one at a time and then kind of they're balancing each other out and this very weird and very soft process of equalization of attention and awareness and yeah all of that i would claim makes sense within a paradigm of oscillatory complementarity and nonlinear wave computing uh, okay so now let's go on to yeah like psychedelics like you know i have a video on uh, and an article on DMT versus 5-MeO DMT. Um, and uh, yeah, there's quite a bit on that. Uh, I talked about like how a key way of kind of describing their differences that DMT gives rise to competing clusters of coherence, whereas 5-MeO DMT gives rise to a global coherence. And, you know, the annealing attractors of those two, uh, you know, effects are very, very different. But I think uh, this can also be understood through the lens of awareness and, and attention. That essentially, uh, 5-MeO DMT would be kind of the equivalent of essentially like a huge dose of insight effects where like a new wave, a new wave for wave propagation gets activated that does not energize the typical nonlinearities that we experience. And so like it dissolves the world and kind of you can actually experience, you know, the clean linear harmonics of your nervous system and kind of like a power wash that in a sense cleans you out and, and you kind of like it's a factory reset in a way uh like that's that's what it feels like to, to a lot of people um whereas no I, whereas dmt quote unquote regular dmt what ayahuasca has uh, and by the way you should never take maois with uh, 5-meo dmt because apparently that's a deadly combination i highly highly just don't do it okay um but dmt and maois apparently are fairly safe even their crazy experience um but yeah i mean dmt more broadly, just like it's a powerful energizer of your world simulation and it gives rise to all of those crazy nonlinearities. It's kind of the waves of energy become really, really strong and really, really high frequency and that energizes your world simulation and all of a sudden you will start experiencing kind of these like, you know, recursive hierarchy of perceptual objects that are like essentially um, becoming the oscillatory complement of each other. And there's these predictable geometric structures that emerge out of that uh, again like people get too fixated on the semantic content it's like i saw a dragon i saw 
Mary Poppins, I saw an angel, <laughs> I saw David Chalmers on the, my DMT experience. You know, all of those things I think ultimately are like relatively uninformative. What's far more interesting from a scientific point of view is like, yeah, but what are the symmetry groups that got activated in those perceptual objects? And, you know, here, here's a, a, a fascinating insight, which is, uh, well, and you can see, you know, there, <laughs> the, the 17 wallpaper symmetry groups, you're not gonna see them, you know, it's not very high resolution, but like you should Google 17 wallpaper symmetry groups um, and uh, you will see that, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially those are kind of like, there's this level of DMT I call the symmetry hotel, which every surface in your experience essentially becomes desolated with these 2D wallpaper symmetries. And, uh, and that's like a reliable effect. Like if you hit a certain dose and level of effect, like that happens uh, and it overrides like low level detail. Yeah, that's like an effect of these, you know, resonance and nonlinearities like saturating the space and this attractors that exist are all symmetrical. There's actually like a really good reason why they're symmetrical. It's very similar to essentially why a soap bubble becomes spherical, which is when it's not spherical, it's going to be radiating energy out of it. And so the spherical is the lowest energy configuration. Yes, in the symmetry hotel, any non-symmetrical configuration, uh, any non-symmetrical way of tessellating that space is going to be radiating out its energy and the, it's going to essentially achieve the local, you know, within that energy bound, the two-dimensional symmetries are the low, lowest energy configuration because it's going to be radiating, literally radiating. You can literally experience this. You can literally see how the shapes on DMT experience are bouncing off these waves of energy within your world simulation and are constructing additional, you know, geometric structures by the way in which they're bouncing off of each other. Okay. I know, that, like, I'm probably, I mean, besides, like, Stephen Dehar, like, okay, like, I'm probably the only person who talks about DMT this way, but, yeah, I mean, once you once you see it, there's no going back. Like, this is how it's constructed. It's this recursive process of nonlinearities uh, stacking on top of each other. Um, and, and, yeah, I mean, this gives rise both to hyperbolic geometry because, um, essentially, these, on, on higher doses past the symmetry hotel, essentially, you have kind of this, uh, saturation of uh, symmetrical shapes, like, you know, too many triangles, you start to have something that becomes hyperbolic, but then also that is not the lowest energy configuration. And sometimes that can like fold back on itself and start to create like cubes and hypercubes and yeah, higher dimensional structures. I'm not saying that you're actually creating, you know, higher dimensional objects in the physical sense, but you're creating it in the sense of the way in which it behaves like dynamically. And I have a whole video about high dimensional objects and high dimensions and whether they're real and the answer is yes virtual high dimensions are real and it can be constructed in this recursive way yeah involving like nonlinearities and oscillatory complementarity uh now a little bit of kind of like the theory this is something that i've talked about ever since like the hyperbolic ge geometry of dmt experience article which is uh essentially there's yeah two things that are going on in like what determines the actual objects that you know get constructed on these like high energy states <laughs> and I was thinking, okay, like uh, maybe when this actually becomes like uh, something academia can actually consume, which is not yet, but you know, in a few years, in a few years time, there's going to be a department, which is going to be like high energy consciousness research center. I mean, just as like nowadays, there's like high energy particle physics department or something like that <laughs> for real though, actually, like I'm not, I'm not joking. Like this is, I think this is actually the, the correct way of thinking about it. And DMT, if you, if you experience DMT, you're experiencing 
high energy consciousness and all the nonlinearities that emerge out of that and its computational properties and all of that. So, okay, so what's going on there? Um, well, there's two things. Uh, first of all, there are energy sources, which are like these metronomes that are energizing your world simulation. And then there are the energy sinks, which are in this particular case, um, one Bayesian energy sinks, which is like what you can recognize lowers the energy. And this is very related to the free energy principle and you know perceptual control theory, uh, except it's not reduced to it. <laughs> That's also a very important point. Uh, I don't want to sound too facetious, but like there's a lot of people who, who nowadays are very excited. They say like, oh, I did my PhD on the free energy principle and psychedelics. And like, now I, we understand how this works. And it's like, not even close. I mean, like to some extent that's power posing. Actually, that's just like a tiny element of the uh, of the puzzle, you know, like, and also I think like once you understand, you know, these other paradigms, the free energy principle actually um, is not even a fundamental thing in this case. It's a, it's, it's a, kind of like an implementation detail of our nervous system, but it's not actually essential for consciousness. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a, I've talked a little bit about that uh, before, I think in the, the psychedelics and free energy principle video, if you're more curious about it. But uh, yeah, I mean, essentially there's these things we call Bayesian energy sinks. So essentially what you can recognize function as an energy sink. And so the, the world sheet, you know, this wobbly thing that is made of the nonlinearities interacting with each other can crystallize around, let's say, an angel or a demon or a philosopher <laughs> or your mom <laughs> or a pizza. Actually, like anything that you can recognize can become a Bayesian energy sink, especially if you expect it. I mean, which is why, yeah, if you've been trained within a spiritual tradition or if you've been watching too much TV, essentially, yeah, there's a bunch of gestalts that are, you have stored. And yeah, those are going to be kind of like more expected by your nervous system it's more likely you're going to anneal and crystallize around it. Also why I think like doing a lot of something like loving kindness meditation is really excellent before, before these sort of journeys, because then you actually may crystallize around that. And that's good. That's going to be healing and beautiful. I, I, I don't recommend, yeah, having intense and pleasant experiences before that, because then you're going to crystallize around things that are not going to be healing. Their vibe is going to be off and it's going to dephase, you know, the, the, the waves of energy, the bounce off of it, and like, it's gonna be a mess. Okay, so I, I, I recommend crystallizing about, you know, loving kindness, you know, equanimity and things like that. That's that's a good idea. So Bayesian energy sinks. And then the other thing is symmetry, symmetry energy sinks. So the things that you see on DMT are essentially this low level, you know, this local energy minima that achieve a balance between semantic content and symmetry. And that's why, yeah, you experience an angel, but the angel is also made of these crazy wallpaper symmetry groups or these like high dimensional geometric shapes because that's the balance is the thing that within that context is minimizing its energy. Okay, so all of a sudden these things start to become a lot less mysterious, right? Um, they are still incredibly crazy and obviously very hedonically loaded. And for that reason, they're very significant, but uh, they may not be what they appear to be. Um, and yeah, with these two things, okay, Bayesian energy sinks and symmetry as energy sinks, that's kind of like a very combined, you know, those two things combined might kind of like give you this notion, like maybe elegance we can talk about or crispness. And like, that's what we're constantly doing. I mean, constantly we're trying to simplify our world simulation so that essentially it captures as much information as possible, reduces prediction errors. And, and to do that, we essentially hit this balance between like, how well does this fit my previous experience? Essentially, how well can I... Can I recognize this? Is this a recognizable situation? And how simple it is. 
and that allows you to strike the balance between overfeeding and underfeeding. Of course, that can, yeah, get out of, you know, if you're not like properly calibrated, you can become kind of like schizophrenic or, or, or you know, uh, borderline. Like there's like various kind of miscalibrations there, I think, that uh, might explain various kind of, uh, yeah, uh, internal imbalances and, uh, and mental illnesses. Okay, so we're getting to the to the end here. Um, I, I, I also wanted to mention, yeah, I mean, I think like attention management. So uh, as we saw, oh, no, 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 actually there was this really crazy thing I, I, I think I didn't mention, which is that uh, once you realize that like, okay, the, the overarching phenomena, the broader phenomena is oscillatory complementarity. Um, it explains some of the weird and trippy things. Okay, like DMT and 5-MeO are like extreme cases. But let's talk a little bit about like, let's say like LSD. So in LSD, there's kind of like all of these like non-dual states and also in meditation. So this quality of like, wait, the thing that I'm paying attention to is neither the subject nor the object. What's going on there? And in meditation, you know, there's so many kinds of meditation, right? Like you can meditate on, for example, the energy centers of your body. You could meditate on space itself. You could meditate on awareness, on pure awareness. You could meditate on like energy, energy itself or, or joy. There's so many things you can choose. So what's going on there? Well, <laughs> the overall theory here would be that you are choosing an oscillatory complement within your experience. And when you do that and you amped up the concentration, essentially that's going to anneal and overwrite essentially the imperfections. And you're going to get a smooth geometrical space that contains the vibe of the thing you're paying attention to. Again, because they co-arise. Like if you're paying attention to love, it's not only love that is going to be in your attention, love is going to be propagated in your awareness field, or at least to the extent that you're concentrated, to the extent that you're focused on it. But then there's also like these very exotic things that like you can actually uh, turn awareness into attention and attention into awareness. So let's say like you're focusing on this point very heavily, like, okay, everything is oscillating to that. It, with that, that's like the oscillatory complement to the rest of your experience. And like you start to expand and expand that. And like, okay, like the region that is the oscillatory complement with your experience becomes larger and larger until you get to this critical threshold where it's like half of your experiential field is the complement of the other half of your experiential field. And then you can start to narrow down the size of the complementary field, uh, the, the oscillatory complement on the other side until you get a fixed point here. So isn't that bizarre? That actually means that the awareness became the attention and the attention became the awareness. So I think that's, and you can do that on meditation and it's really trippy. And I think like non-dual states like that you experience on LSD or on, you know, higher doses of concentration and meditation are kind of when you actually find this perfect balance where neither of the two sides is actually something that you can say is like more narrow than the other. So all of a sudden that breaks the paradigm of, you know, the flesh, you know, the, sorry, the, fl the flash, the flashlight of, of, of attention, which of course we're made of flesh. So, okay, it's fine. <laughs> the flashlight of attention. Uh, it breaks the paradigm because you can actually expand it out. And all of a sudden you have something that, yeah, there's neither of them is privileged, right? So, my understanding is that when people get in love with this idea of the balance between good and evil, yeah, it's just that they have this internal representation where like good and evil are balanced. 
that just feels good because it's a high valence configuration. But it's, it's an illusion. It's like it's, it's not actually representing something that is coherent <laughs> at a more semantic level. And once you understand that that's the trick, you stop, you know, it's like, okay, fine, I was cheating myself. Like, suffering is bad. I'm just coping. I'm just coping with the existing of suffering. You know, struggle is real. Struggle is real. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I guess to, to conclude, um, we also have kind of, yeah, I think like attention management uh, is kind of like an important kind of like pro-social skill in a way. So, uh, and you have kind of these like uh, arms races, unfortunately, in in uh, communities. Uh, <laughs> there's this fun fun uh, presentation. Uh, I think I, I did a transcript of it on, on quality computing about like uh, virtue signaling uh, runaway virtue signaling in EA and things like that. So essentially, yeah, when something is like very attention, you know, it has the power to, you know, catch attention, people will kind of like start to compete into creating more attention grabbing versions of it. That's actually one of the reasons why I don't think it's very wise to engage with something like existential risk community. Like if you, if you want to actually help with the existential risk effort, Probably you need to find like super smart people and like make a circle of trust and just talk about those ideas inside because when it's like d distributed, you know, decentralized, there's a lot of things for which decentralization is great, actually, but not everything. <laughs> I think like X risk, you know, brainstorming decentralized, decentralized is a terrible idea because all of a sudden you have this community where everybody's trying to find the most attention grabbing way of destroying the world in order to prove their own worth is like, hey, I came up with this creative way of destroying the world and I'm going to write a, you know, a post on the EA forum and hopefully I will be able to be hired into one of these X-risk organizations and like, like sure, you demonstrated your value and your ability and your skill set, but you also added information on how to destroy the world, which is, yeah, I'm actually really worried about that dynamic. Um, there's a bunch of things that don't talk about precisely for that reason. Um, so that's, it's very important. Yeah, I think like attention management as a pro-social uh, is important to be aware of kind of like at a meta cognitive level. It's like, okay, is this attention dynamic healthy for me, for others? Um, I mean, yeah, and and, uh, and I think like, I would love to kind of have the sensibility, develop the sensibility. I mean, I'm not saying that I have it, but develop it within, a, within me and within a community where like we're aware of how we are like, you know, playing with each other's attention. And actually be like super you know respectful so that we can actually create a collective oscillatory complement of each other that generates value as opposed to yeah zero-sum competitions or, or whatever it may be um and then also um yeah i think i think I'll, I'll, that's that's what i'll end with uh uh which is um i think there's like this corner case of like blended attention and awareness and like these you only experience on certain states of consciousness, but I think like a high enough level of loving kindness can do this. Where like, uh, essentially you can get like this balance. Uh, you know, I was talking about like, okay, like you can get like a balance between left and right. And then all of a sudden it's unclear which one is the attention and which one is the awareness. But imagine doing that in like small regions of your experience where like they're perfectly balanced with each other. So when you have like packets of those, those feel like packets of love. <laughs> and uh, I've talked about qualia critters before, which are kind of like semi-autonomous, like hallucinatory content. So this, they could be made of loving kindness, they, like this balanced energy of attention and awareness that they like blend into each other. It's kind of like they're loving each other. And uh, I would be very interested in figuring out how to do that reliably. I mean, I've definitely experienced it. It's really cool. Very beautiful. 
So hopefully we can make more of that. So <laughs> and with that, I'll, I'll end there. So thank you so much for tuning in and I'll talk to you another time on another topic. So infinite bliss, everybody. Take care.